0: Well, we've ended the first week in the trial of Alec Murdoch. Now, the South Carolina attorney is accused of killing his wife and son at the family hunting estate in June of 2021.
1: Our Taggart Hauck has been following the trial. He joins us live now in Colleton County. And Tag, we're learning more about Murdoch's interaction with police the night of the murders.
2: And it comes from a newly released uh, interview with Sled. For the first time, we're seeing Alec Murdoch on camera with investigators alec murdoch showed emotion in the courtroom friday at times looking down as he listened to testimony former south carolina attorney is accused of killing his wife maggie and son paul at the family's hunting estate in june of
0: 2021
2: my, my boy over there i could see it was Led interview from the scene captured him describing what he did after finding Maggie and Paul.
0: I touched them both. I tried to take, I mean, I tried to do it as limited as possible, Mm -hmm. but I, I tried to take their pulse on both of them.
2: Strange because it didn't look like he'd been around a bloody scene, said the detective behind him.
3: How would you describe the defendant's hands when you saw him when you were interviewing him? How would you describe his hands?
4: They were clean. Clean.
3: How would you describe his
2: arms? They were clean.
3: How would you describe his t-shirt?
2: Clean. The defense countered.
0: And to your visual eye, it did not look like he had just blown his son's head off in the confines of a feed room where splatter is everywhere. Isn't that correct?
5: I didn't say that.
2: Murdoch again suggested Paul's boat crash, which resulted in the death of Mallory Beach, as a possible motive.
6: But has he received any direct threats? Related to the boat accident?
0: Oh yes, all the time. He gets- Recently? Um, yes sir, I mean, he gets them all the time.
2: And Murdoch also in that video appeared to indicate that a person of interest may also be the groundskeeper at that property. Court resumes at 9.30 on Monday. For now in Culloden County, Taggart the WYFF, News 4.
5: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. In this episode, I'm going to continue to analyse the 34-minute-long interview of Alec Murdoch at the crime scene and share some more thoughts about the law enforcement response. And I have to say, there's a lot that bothers me about both. Now, before I dive back in, I just want to mention two things. The first thing is your health warning and caveat that listener discretion is advised, And the second thing is I just want to comment on certain podcasters who are also professionals who work in the criminal justice system who've covered this case and the fact that they keep stating throughout their episodes that behaviour doesn't matter. I really want to underline the fact that behaviour matters a lot in these cases. I mean, investigations are started because of someone's behaviour. The prosecution's case can often be built on circumstantial evidence and behaviour alone. It really matters. Behaviour matters in every regard, from the police investigation right through to the trial and beyond. From the start, if it's a murder investigation, the victimology matters. The first thing the police want to find out, or should want to find out, is who the victim was, what their character and personality was like, as well as what their daily routine was, to understand whether anything out of the blue had happened before the murder. Have there been any previous threats, for example? Behaviour matters regarding risk assessment and risk management when trying to keep a victim alive. Now, if it's a murder investigation, preserving the crime scene to protect what happened and the victim in order to process the crime scene and undertake a crime scene assessment analysis, with all of that, the behaviour matters. The investigators, the CSIs and analysts want to understand what the perpetrator did or didn't do. They want to assess all potential forensic opportunities from what they believe the perpetrator did, what he touched, what he moved, how he interacted with the victim, the sequence of events, all of this matters. And you also want to exploit all forensic opportunities. Then when you have a suspect, their behaviour is put under the microscope. That means timelining the perpetrator, including their pre- and post offence behaviour, what was going on in their life, their phone usage, their movements, their language, their interactions, all to build up a picture of what happened, including their baseline behaviour, what was normal for that person, and what was unexpected or unusual. All of that behaviour is relevant. And it's important at any trial. It's used by the prosecution to tell that story, using that behaviour, about what they believed happened for it to make sense to the jury. And then post-trial... If and when convicted, it's the behaviour of the perpetrator that is constantly being assessed and evaluated. Suffice to say, the 911 call is very important in a case and it assumes even more significance if it's made by the potential suspect. The 911 call is most often the start of the case. Therefore, it's also the first statement from the potential suspect. The 911 call is used when interviewing a suspect and the 911 call is often used at the trial. So to say that the 911 call and behaviour and behavioural analysis doesn't matter is absolutely wrong. The irony for me is that those podcasters who keep saying this go on to talk about behaviour ad infinitum throughout their episodes, including circumstantial evidence, which cases can be built on alone, and it's just as strong as forensic evidence. OK, enough on that. I just find it confounding and obtuse, and I just wish they would stop. OK, back to the case. So I ended the last episode with a segment from this interview with SLED Special Agent David Owen and Collerton County's Detective Laura Rutland. Danny Henderson, Murdoch's personal attorney, was also in the car. Now, for me, it's an interesting strategy to interview Murdoch in the car and for the officer asking the questions to be in the driving seat and the detective to be behind Murdoch and his personal attorney in the back seat. Straight away, you see, it changes the power dynamic. For one, Murdoch is literally in the passenger seat, physically and metaphorically, although I can tell he's desperate to be in the driving seat. But he's sat side by side with the sled officer asking the questions, and Detective Laura Rutland is behind Murdoch. He's unable to make eye contact with his attorney or with David Owen, the sled officer, asking the questions. He tries to, I can see him trying to do it many times and he also wants to know how his answers land. The camera is right in front of them so I get to see these moments on camera and you can too and I highly recommend that you watch the interview. I've put the link to the interview in the show notes. Now I can tell that Murdoch would normally rely on his personal power to persuade people and he's very good at reading people's emotional temperature but in order to do that he has to have eyes on them and it's very hard to do it where he's sitting. And so I can physically see for myself that that's a problem for him. It's like doing an interview for a news outlet down the pipe, as they call it, where you're looking at a black box and the questions are coming through to you in an earpiece. It's really not easy. As human beings, we want and need the connection when we're talking to someone, particularly if it's a difficult or sensitive subject that we're talking about, or if we're trying to influence someone. Now this has been top of mind for me, as I've just done a News Nation interview about the horrific Idaho quadruple murders and the allegations that are coming out about BK. Allegations of previous stalking and misogyny. No surprise to me there, and I'll put a link to my News Nation interview in the show notes and also to my Crime Analyst YouTube videos about the case. Now I used to do a lot of these sorts of interviews at Westminster, and I can tell you that they're not easy. With this interview, NewsNation sent a mobile studio to me. It's basically a satellite truck. So I was sat on a chair in the back of a white truck with an earpiece and I was looking at a black box with my video image above it. It feels very artificial and I'm someone who really likes to see the whites of someone's eyes when I'm talking with them, particularly when it's about a difficult or sensitive subject like a quadruple murder. It's really very hard to establish a rapport with the interviewer It's hard to read them and also to anticipate what's coming next. These interviews are tough and they're tough and challenging when you just cannot establish eye contact. And having done this recent News Nation interview, it was top of my mind. So I went back and re-examined the interview of Murdoch in the car. It's actually a stroke of genius by the officers, whether they know it or not. You see, Murdoch really struggles with it and his power is totally shut down. And I'll explain more in this episode as there are some fascinating and very bizarre moments. Firstly, if you follow my work, you've probably heard me talk often about the fact that with crime scene assessment and analysis, I often look at not just what's present, but I'm also very interested in what's absent or what's missing. Well, Murdoch told the dispatcher on the 911 call that he checked both Maggie and Paul's pulses... And he said, and I quote, nobody's breathing. Now we're going to compare it and listen to what he said in the Sled interview in the car. Now, just to backtrack, at the start of the interview, Special Agent David Owen asked Alec Murdoch to clarify his name and his contact details, and he asked the name of his attorney in the back of the car who was sat directly behind him. Then Sled's David Owen, who leads the interview the majority of the time, explained who he was. And he also said that he hated to do this, but... Well, I think you should take a listen to this for yourself.
6: All right. Um, as I stated, I'm David Owen, and Laura Rutland with Collington County, and I'm sled. I hate to have to do this. I but, understand. Yeah. I totally yeah. understand. Yeah.
0: So you don't, you don't have any problem yeah.
6: with it. So, um just start at the top take your time
0: um like when i came back here
6: mm-hmm.
0: i mean i pulled up and i could see him and you know i knew something was bad i ran out i knew it was really bad <laughs> my my boy over there i could see it was Sorry, awesome. <laughs> and i could see his brain on and i ran over to maggie <clears throat> and uh, actually i think i tried to turn paul over first um uh you know, I tried to turn him over, and uh, I don't know, I figured it out. Um, uh, his cell phone popped out of his pocket. I st- started to try to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. Um, then I went to my wife, and I uh, i mean, I could see... hmm mm-hmm.
6: did you touch Maggie at all?
0: I did. I touched them both. Okay. I tried to take I mean, I tried to do it as limited as possible, mm-hmm. but I, I tried to take their pulse on both of them. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you know, I called 911 um pretty much right away. And she was very good. Um I talked to her. Um, I told her I was going to get off the phone to call some family members. (coughs) I did that. Um, And um,
6: And What family members did you call? I
0: called my brother Randy. And I called my brother John. And I tried to call a little boy real good friend that's right around the corner from here but i didn't get him Okay.
6: what all was around um paul when you walked up blood any any other anything else
0: i mean there was some body Mm
6: -hmm. things yes sir i mean like any other evidence i know you said the phone fell out the pocket um but did you see anything else That didn't belong or shouldn't belong or that wasn't part of Paul?
0: No, sir. Not... No. Not...
5: No, sir.
6: How about Maggie? No, sir. You didn't see anything around them?
5: Okay, so let's break that down. He first said, I think I tried to turn Paul over first. I tried to turn him over. I don't know. I figured it out. Now, when he said, I figured it out, I'm not entirely sure what he meant by that, but Paul was lying face down and I don't know why he would want to turn him over. You can check for a pulse without turning someone over. He later clarified that he didn't succeed in turning Paul over. He next said, and his cell phone popped out of his pocket and I tried to do something with it, thinking maybe, but then I put it back down really quickly. This utterance about the phone is very interesting. Why would he try to do anything with Paul's phone? And what sort of thing was he trying to do exactly? Now I don't know, I can't answer that question and he didn't say. And what's more, he wasn't asked when he should have been. Also, surely finding his dead son and dead wife would be his sole focus, checking for pulses and calling for help, not Paul's phone that fell out of his pocket. Now, I suspect he wanted Sled to know in case his fingerprints were on the phone. That's the only reason that I can think that he would volunteer this information and Paul's phone was then placed on his back. Now, one of the things that struck me is if Paul was indeed holding the phone when he was shot, it most likely would have fallen to the ground. But here it was placed on Paul's back. The comment about trying to do something with his phone, I believe that this is leakage. And I believe he did try and do something with Paul's phone. That much was true. Perhaps he realised that there was not much battery left on Paul's phone. It later died at 10.34pm, but it was at 2% for some time. It's somewhat ironic that it was indeed Paul's phone that had incriminating evidence on it. And perhaps Murdoch's instinct was right, that he needed to try to do something with it. But he didn't. And that evidence was significant at trial.
1: allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure but also to personalize and decorate your very own orchid island where the story takes place how sharp are your detective skills find out when you download june's journey on your android or ios device or play online via facebook games your detective journey awaits
5: he then said i touch them both i try to do it as limited as possible but I tried to take the pulse of both of them. Now, Murdoch said that to the dispatcher too when he made the 911 call. But what's interesting is that there's no actual evidence of him doing that, either whilst he was on the 911 call with the dispatcher and we don't hear him do it, and we also see no physical evidence that he has done it. And given where Maggie and Paul's bodies were, some 30 feet apart, That would have been a real challenge for him to do this in the 19 to 22nd window that Murdoch said he did it in. Now, when I'm talking about there's no physical evidence that he did it, I mean that Murdoch had no blood spatter or brain matter on him that I could see with the naked eye or on his arms or his hands. And this was a bloody and messy scene. Make no mistake about that. In fact, Murdoch appeared to be wearing a clean round-necked white T-shirt Now, given the nature of the victim's injuries and the fact that they were shot by somebody who was close by and that they didn't see it coming, I would expect there to be a lot more blood on his shirt and also on him. But there wasn't, and that should have raised a question right from the start. At other scenes where family members have discovered their loved ones lying in pools of blood, and of course, if you don't know whether someone is alive or not, they have cradled their loved one, and cuddled them, and they try to do CPR with their loved one, but they hold their loved one, and therefore they're oftentimes covered in blood. But noticeably, that's not what happened with Alec Murdoch. And it didn't happen either with Michael Peterson and his wife Kathleen, who he said that he discovered in a pool of blood at the bottom of a staircase. In fact, Michael Peterson actually took the time to take his shoes and socks off before he got close to Kathleen. And then he cleaned himself up before the police arrived, just like Oscar Pistorius did. Pistorius washed his hands before Inspector Botha arrived at the scene of Reva Steenkamp's brutal murder. Bizarrely, he'd also moved Reva's body down the stairs. Well, going back to Murdoch, blood staining and brain matter being absent are significant, in my opinion. It's an important absence at this scene, particularly given what he told the dispatcher and the officers who interviewed him at the scene. What he told them and what he said he did and his physical presentation just don't match up. They're not congruent and that should have raised a red flag right from the start. What I also found very interesting was that although Murdoch made a lot of noise and sounds as if he were crying throughout the car interview... I didn't see any tears. Not one. There was certainly a lot of clearing the nasal passages and hoiking logies and clearing his throat and spitting, but I saw an absence of water, of fluids and tears, and therefore I'm not really sure why he was clearing his throat other than perhaps to make it sound authentic, and perhaps knowing that they couldn't see the front of his face, the noises and covering his face and shrugging his shoulders, moving them up and down, might seem authentic from behind or the side, like he's actually crying, but I don't see any actual tears. Again, sometimes when someone is making a lot of noise, it acts as a distraction and you can miss the BGO, the blinding glimpse of the obvious, as I call them. What I don't see in this interview is authentic emotion. And granted, everyone responds differently and trauma has an impact on everybody, But there seems to be an insincere reaction and emotion, particularly with all the noise that he's making and the way that he keeps looking across at the officer to see how his answers are landing with him. Now, granted, you also get a much better sense about someone when you've baselined their behaviour. And like I said, of course, this was a traumatic event. But what I do see is that there were times when Murdoch is very clearly checking in to see the impact of what he's saying and the officer's reaction to what he's saying. In other words, he's very conscious of impression management, which points to deception. If someone is genuinely in trauma, they're not assessing somebody else for how their behaviour impacts them. They are just in that moment. They are in flow. And that's what's different and what stands out with this particular interview. Also, there's a number of occasions where he goes off on tangents and gives a lot of extraneous information. And I'm going to give you a few examples of those times. Here's one of them. Take a listen to this.
6: How about Maggie? No, sir. You didn't see anything around them? What made you come out here at tonight?
0: Um, I went to, my mom's a late stage Alzheimer's patient. My dad's in the hospital. Um, my mom gets anxious when she does. I went to check on them and Maggie, Maggie's a dog lover and she fools with the dogs. And I knew she'd gone to the kennel. I was at the house. I left the house and went to my mom's for just a little while. Tried to call her when I left, (coughs) texted her, no response. Um, When I got back to the house, the house was obviously nobody was in there. So I figured they're still up here fooling around. Paul was going to be getting set up to plant our sunflower seeds, got sprayed and died, and he was refiguring to do to plant the sunflower seeds. So I came back up here and drove up and saw
5: and called. I have to say that this is such a bizarre monologue at the top of this interview. Now, I believe Murdoch is struggling because of the power dynamics in the car and the way this interview is set up. But I'm going to share with you the subtext to what he's really saying and conveying with this monologue. Here are the headlines One, that he's a dutiful, caring son who looks out for his mother and father. Two, that Maggie was a dog lover, and she fools with the dogs. Now, fools is an odd word for me. Maybe it's a sudden thing. But the reality was that the dogs were in cages up at the kennels a quarter of a mile from the house because they were actual hunting dogs. They were working dogs, or dogs with jobs, as I call them, and not petting dogs. But what Murdoch wants us to know is that whilst he was with his parents who were ill, Maggie was fooling around with the dogs. Because she was a dog lover and didn't really care about his parents being ill, and he takes his responsibility seriously. Three, Murdoch said that he texts Maggie and called her, but she didn't respond. That's followed by a long pause. Murdoch then scratched his head and tried to look over at special agent David Owen, who sat next to him in the driver's seat, but he gets nothing back. He continued that he went to the house and realised that they were still fooling around. Then he talked about his son Paul. Paul was going to plant sunflower seeds. The sunflowers had been killed and he was refiguring it out, how he was going to replant the seeds and put that mess right. The subtext here is my good-for-nothing son. Then Murdoch said he drove up and that he saw and then he faded off and called and he faded off again. Now, importantly, he doesn't complete either sentence. This is an example of fading facts, and fading facts are an indication of deception. Also, the fact that Maggie never responded to him, that again implies that she's not doing the thing that she should be doing, whilst his being the dutiful son. Also, interestingly, Murdoch avoided the word murder. He doesn't mention murder at all in that monologue or any thereafter. The word is never mentioned. When asked about the relationships, and he's firstly asked about the relationship between Maggie and Paul, then also about himself and Maggie, and then himself and Paul, there are some very interesting moments. Listen to this.
6: Had Maggie and Paul been arguing over anything? No. What was their relationship like? Wonderful. Wonderful. How about yours and Maggie's?
0: Wonderful. I mean, I'm sure we had little things here and there, but we had a wonderful marriage, wonderful relationship.
6: And yours and Paul's relationship?
0: As good as it could be.
5: These are instructive moments in the interview. When asked of Paul and Maggie's relationship, Murdoch said they had a good one and weren't arguing or upset with each other. When asked about his relationship with Maggie, he said, we had a wonderful marriage, wonderful relationship. Now this for me had Scott Peterson vibes when he was asked by Diane Sawyer about his relationship with Lacey who was pregnant when he murdered her and he said, glorious. This was an oversell. He's overselling it because it's a lie and I believe the same is true here. What Murdoch withheld is that Maggie was not living with him and that they were arguing about money and she wanted out. But no, he didn't say any of that He said, wonderful marriage, wonderful relationship, a double oversell. When asked about his relationship with Paul, he said, as good as it can be, as good as it could be, what does that mean? You know, it's such an odd thing to say, particularly as Paul has just been brutally murdered and he's allegedly just found his son dead with his brains blown out. And so to say as good as it could be, perhaps he's missing the words under the circumstances. For me, it felt like those words might be missing. But either way, it could be interpreted that he didn't really like Paul. For me, it's out of place and it's such an odd thing to say when Paul has been murdered and when he has apparently discovered him. Also, Murdoch did a side eye to check how that landed with the officer He wanted to know whether special agent Dave Owen was buying what he was selling. Hey lovely, what's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S.com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Special Agent David Owen then asks him if he's been having problems out there. And listen to Murdoch's answer.
6: Have y'all been having any problems out here? Trespassers,
0: people breaking in? None that I know of. The only thing that what comes to my mind is my son Paul was in a boat wreck uh, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And there's been a, you know, he was charged with being uh, arrested for being the driver. There's been a lot of negative publicity about that. And there's been a lot of people online just really vile stuff. But when Paul's out and about, I mean, people routinely, I don't think I know the full story. because um, so I don't think they give it to me. But I mean, he's been punched and hit and just attacked a lot. So you know, but I mean, nothing like this.
6: Yeah. Any any one person in particular or group of people
0: I don't know.
6: That you could think of?
0: Not that I know, no, sir.
6: Has he, re- other than being assaulted, has he received any direct threats related to the boat accident?
0: Oh, yes. All the time, he re- gets Recently? Threats. Um, Yes, sir. I mean, he gets them all the time. Okay. He gets them all the time.
6: <clears throat> what kind of, th- I mean?
0: I'm gonna kick your ass, you know. I- I've never been privy firsthand, mm-hmm. you know. Um,
6: is that through social media or
0: No ma'am. Person? It's mostly like if if he goes out places is what you know, what he goes out like somewhere. He's in college, so if he goes out is what I understand. Mm-hmm. And I can find out better details from some of his younger friends on that. <laughs>
5: So here, Murdoch jumped straight in with the boat crash motive again and said, and I quote, Paul has been punched, attacked, hit and threatened in response to the boat accident resulting in the death of Mallory Beach, mostly in person and mostly from people Paul didn't know. He added that Paul got threats all the time. All the time, he said, the double for emphasis. Yet he couldn't provide any detail about any incidents or any specific threats not one. He said that, yet throughout this interview, there's an absence of anger and urgency about whoever has threatened Paul or whoever has potentially murdered Paul and Maggie. In fact, Murdoch was sat in the car talking calmly. He spoke slowly and deliberately at times, which felt to me like it was rehearsed or scripted. Now again, watch the interview for yourselves, but for me, these are big red flags. I would expect to be hearing things like, I need to know who did this or how did this happen or why did this happen and these people need to be brought to justice. These sorts of things would be said and I would expect these things to be accompanied by overwhelming feelings of anger and grief and wanting to know what law enforcement were going to do next and when they would do it by and a sense of urgency, particularly if this was an execution-style hit on your own family And the obvious thing, for me, is that you might be thinking that you're next. But Murdoch doesn't seem to be concerned about that at all. Not one utterance about it. Funny, that. He doesn't make one utterance about it, and for me, that's significant. He then listed a few of Paul's friends and said Paul was going to move into a house in Columbia with his friends. He then named two of Paul's friends, one being Rogan, who lived around the corner who is a real good, helpful young man, he said. That was interesting to me. You see, hearing him say this, I believed that Rogan Gibson was very important and I immediately wanted to know more about Rogan Gibson given how Murdoch talked about him and described him here and I wrote a note to follow up regarding Rogan Gibson. Remember I told you that right before Paul was shot, he was messaging with a friend and he recorded a video of a dog, a dog who had a problem with his tail. Well, Rogan Gibson was that friend. In fact, he was Paul's longtime friend, and his dog was staying at the kennels. Paul was worried about the dog's tail. He called Rogan asking if something was wrong with the dog's tail. He called him at 8:40 pm. and 20 seconds, and the call lasted four minutes and 14 seconds. Now significantly, Whilst on that call, Rogan testified in court that he heard Miss Maggie and Mr. Alex's voices. That's huge. Take a listen to this. Here's Rogan in his own words, testifying in court.
3: Did you talk to Paul again after that initial conversation? I did. Right. And when was that roughly? Around eight eight forty. Okay. And what uh, what was that conversation about?
4: He called and said, asked if something was wrong with the dog's tail.
3: Okay. And was that the first you were hearing about that? That's correct. Tell me about your conversation.
4: I told him that, you know, I wasn't real sure. I just dropped him off there Sunday Mm -hmm. and um, told him, let's try to see if he can get me a picture or FaceTime me and let me see what was going on with the dog's tail. All
3: right. Where was Paul when he called you?
4: He was at the dog kennels.
3: And how do you know that?
4: I could hear the dogs barking in the original call. Is he describing to you what he's seeing on Cash's
3: tail? That's correct. And Cash was at the kennels? He was. Did you hear any other voices when you were on the phone with Paul about 8.40? I did. And what voices did you hear? I heard Miss Maggie. And who else did you hear? I thought it was Mr. Alec that I heard. You thought it was Mr. Alec. You talked to Paul, and and what did y'all talk about? What was he going to do? He was going to try to FaceTime me he and
4: said you know how the service is out here he said if i can't get the facetime to go through i'll send you a video
3: and why was he going to facetime you what's the difference between facetime and a regular call
4: so i could see what the dog what was wrong with the dog
3: and y'all talked about how the service is out here that's correct and what did you mean by that
4: most of the time you got enough service to make a call i mean sometimes the calls will break up but a facetime you couldn't really get a whole lot of service to make a facetime call it's kind of lagging
3: Y'all had problems with that before? That's correct. Did y'all discuss what to do if the FaceTime didn't work? We did. And what was the discussion?
4: He was going to send me a video of it, of
3: the dog. He was going to video it and then do what with it? Text it to you? That's correct. Is that the last time you ever talked to your friend? That was. Did y'all try to FaceTime? We did. Did it work?
4: It it came through, but it was kind of lagging. I couldn't tell what was going on.
3: And then never heard from him again?
4: That's correct. Did
3: you ever get that video? I did not. After you never got the video, did you try to reach back out to Paul to see if you could get him to respond? I did. I called him a few times and texted him. Did he ever respond? He didn't. Did you reach out to anyone else trying to get Paul to respond? I texted Miss Maggie. Did she respond? She did.
5: Did you hear Rogan's voice go up when he answered the question about whether that was the last time he heard from Paul? That was raw emotion. Sir Rogan had told Paul to send a picture or to FaceTime with a video so that he could see his dog Cash's tail for himself. At 8.41pm and 38 seconds... Paul received a Snapchat message from Rogan. Paul then initiated a FaceTime with Rogan for more than 11 seconds at 8.44pm and 34 seconds, but it didn't work well, so the plan was that if FaceTime didn't work, that Paul would send him the video. At 8.44pm and 55 seconds, Paul records a video for Rogan at the kennels. He never sent that video, and Paul's phone was locked at 8.49pm and one second, and it went dark forever. Now, as Rogan said, he tried calling and messaging Paul, but he couldn't get a reply. He then tried Miss Maggie, but she didn't reply either. Remember I mentioned that Maggie received a text from Rogan in part three? At 9.34pm and 14 seconds, Maggie's phone received the text, tell Paul to call me, which was unread. Now, it's reasonable to believe that Murdoch knew Rogan was speaking with Paul texting and calling with him, which is why he called Rogan that night and told Rogan what happened. It's certainly odd that Murdoch named him and said he called him that night and referenced him in this interview with police. That stood out to me straight away when I heard Murdoch say that he called Rogan and slipped in all these positive sentiments about him. I immediately wondered why Murdoch would call Rogan Gibson, having just discovered his wife Maggie and his son Paul had been brutally murdered. And he didn't just call him once. The first time he called him was at 10.21pm and 25 seconds after calling his brothers Randy Murdoch and John Marvin Murdoch. There was no answer. At 10.24pm and 43 seconds, Murdoch texts Rogan Gibson, stating, call me. At 10.25pm and 49 seconds, Murdoch attempts to FaceTime Rogan Gibson. There was no answer. And at 10.30pm and 31 seconds, Murdoch again attempts to FaceTime Rogan Gibson. There was no answer. Now, Rogan Gibson testified he was already asleep at this time. But Murdoch called him once, texted him once, and attempted two FaceTime calls in nine minutes. He sure did want to speak to Rogan Gibson that night. Now, I've looked at his phone data from that night... And what's interesting to me is that, yes, he's prolific and on his phone a lot, and I have a lot more to say about that, but he only called his son Buster Murdoch once, and that was at 10.44pm and 20 seconds. The connection lasted eight seconds, so that's not enough time to explain to him that his mother Maggie and his brother Paul had been shot dead. Three minutes later, at 10.47pm, Murdoch texted Buster and Tracy White and Brooklyn White, stating, Call me urgent. So, what's also instructive to me when I analyse Murdoch's phone data is that he called his own remaining son Buster after calling Rogan Gibson three times. That stands out to me. I mean, you would think that his remaining son would be a priority at this time, that he'd want to, one, ensure that Buster was safe. Remember, Murdoch's narrative was that his family had been gunned down in a revenge attack. Two, that he'd want to hold him and comfort him. And three, that he'd want to ensure that Buster heard it from him and no one else. But that's not what Murdoch did. Buster was not his priority. Rogan Gibson was. That's revealing to me. He knew Rogan knew something, but once the police arrived, his time was taken up with them. So Murdoch was right about Paul's phone. Remember, he said that he picked it up. I believe he panicked. He was under a lot of pressure in a very short time window. And he was right about Rogan Gibson. Both were extremely important in the stories that they would tell about that night, and they cross corroborated each other's story, which was significant. But that's not the only available evidence from that night. Alec Murdoch's phone, his steps, and his car data painted a very different picture to what he told the police sat in the police car the night he claimed to have discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies. And next week, I'm going to return to all four, starting with the rest of Murdoch's interview with SLED, because I'm not done, not just yet. And talking of stories, take a listen to this.
6: So is there anybody that you can think of that we need to talk to tonight? Is there a name that comes to mind?
0: I mean, I can't tell you anybody that I'm overly suspicious of off the top of my head. Okay. You know? Um, I mean, this is such a stupid thing. I'm even embarrassed to say it. But it just didn't make any sense. I just hired a guy out here. Mm -hmm. And... He really, he wasn't cutting the mustard, but I hadn't told him this yet. Paul's been working with him a lot. He killed the sunflower seeds in our dove field just recently, which is why Paul was here doing this. He told Paul a story the other day about how when he was in high school, he got in a fight with some black guys and the FBI undercover team observed him fighting those guys and put him on an undercover team with three Navy SEALs. And that their job was to kill radical Black Panthers. And they did that from Myrtle Beach to Savannah. Now, I really don't think this guy, you know, mm-hmm. is probably the person, but that's just so friggin'.
6: Yeah, that's kind of a far fetched story. It's weird,
0: but he was off today. Okay. He took his daddy to the doctor.
6: What's his name?
0: C.B. Rowe. R-O-W-E? Yeah, and I sent him a message to text me earlier today about the sunflowers, and he called me back when I was on the way to my mom's house.
6: Mm-hmm. <coughs> Did you talk to him at that time?
0: Briefly. I was on the phone with a lawyer friend of mine named Chris Wilson from Bamberg, so I told him I'd call him back okay. tomorrow see him in the morning
6: when you briefly talked to um mr Rowe, what was his demeanor or attitude or
0: i mean it seemed normal i mean i asked him about the sunflowers and so you know i mean i'm sure he's a little bit
6: where does he live
0: i don't exactly know somewhere in bluff i mean in bronson okay uh,
6: uh, uh. Do you have his phone number? I do. You got it with you, police oh, sir?
0: I do. You know, but I do think him and Paul got along pretty well. hmm Um, that's just really, really
5: weird. All right. Um. Yes, Murdoch actually said that. So marinate on that and hear what I have to say about it next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheesley at Abridged Audio.